the moment you use a phrase like we employ best practice, you have stifled creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. You are saying this is the accepted social norm. This is the accepted consensus. This is the accepted brackets, lazy consensus that says this is best practice. I should be thinking about what's better than best practice. But if you don't let me do that, because we have to do it this way, because it's always been done this way, you are suddenly potentially stifling yourself from new ideas. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am delighted you're here for another week with another fascinating conversation. This week, we speak to Paul Craven, who aims to promote behavior economics in business and in life. Paul is also a magician. This conversation gets fascinating as we start to blend magic and behavioral economics. But before we get into the show, I'm gonna ask a favor. If you've been enjoying this, a great way to show the appreciation our guest and their time would be to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. If you also have a favorite episode, please send it to your friend as we greatly appreciate it. As I mentioned, Paul aims to promote behavioral economics. He likes to examine why and how real people make real decisions in a real world and believes when we think about our financial behaviors in this manner, we all can feel a little bit more peace knowing that Mistakes, well, they're just bound to happen because that's how real people make real decisions in the real world. Paul has over 30 years of experience in the investment industry and is a well-known public speaker on behavioral economics and magic as he's given several talks, including a popular TEDx talk. During this conversation, we spend a lot of time talking about how, from an evolutionary perspective, we have these biases, cognitive bias, that are really important. And the reason why we are here today is because these biases were in place that allowed us to survive and evolve. However, when these biases go unchecked or unnoticed, and we start to make financial decisions based on these biases, that's when we start to make mistakes. Paul shares wonderful resources and insights on how we can handle and live with these behavioral biases. This conversation will resonate with anyone who is curious about why we make the decisions we do about money and how we can start to make meaningful changes with our financial decisions. This episode was recorded on October 25th, 2022. I say that because you'll hear a reference of the new prime minister in the United Kingdom. And while the small reference to the new prime minister does timestamp this episode, The conversation that ensues is timeless. You can find more about Paul at his website, www.paulcraven.com or at Twitter where he goes at Craven Partners. That's C-R-A-V-E-N Partners, P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S. 
Paul also is finishing a new book that will be released soon. So I recommend following Paul so you get the latest news when that book comes out. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Paul Craven. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Sean. Paul, I'm excited to have you on the show. I like talking about money. I like talking about our inability, our ability, depends which way we look at it, to make decisions in around money. But I've never talked to someone who was a magician or looked at magic as well. And that is your background. You have been part of an organization that's been around, I believe, for over 100 years, the Magic Circle. And I, I'm one looking forward to talking about money or behaviors and magic. I thought we would start though, yesterday, or I guess officially today, you have a new prime minister. And I was Googling around money and magic. And I discovered a quote that a, an old prime minister once said in the UK. The quote was, and I, I believe it wasn't her quote, rather is something that a statement that happens in your political conversations. And this is not meant to be political. Rather, I found it quite humorous. And her quote was, there isn't a magic money tree that we can shake and suddenly provide everything people want. So Paul, as someone who studies money, behaviors, and magic, please tell me she is incorrect and that tree does exist. Well, obviously all politicians, when they're in government, want a magic money tree because it helps them a lot in terms of their spending plans. I still think that it comes down to how much you raise by tax and how much you raise by debt. And hopefully a good government will have a healthy a balance of both that doesn't then labor future generations with huge amounts of debt for their grandchildren. Yeah, magic Magic is has always been an interesting hobby for me. It's not my background in the sense of my career, of course. I, uh, I've worked in investment markets since 1986, and I've worked for three companies, Schroeder's, Pimco, and Goldman Sachs. And actually, since you mention our new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, as well as being the the youngest prime minister for 210 years. He's also the first British Asian and he's the first Hindu prime minister. But I was amused by a tweet I saw this morning that said he's the first Goldman Sachs prime minister because he spent a couple of years as a very junior in Goldman Sachs. And I actually overlapped with him uh, for a year, though I, I haven't never met him. I have to say he worked in a different part of the organization to me when I was there. But yeah, so a new prime minister today and uh, watch this space, political junkies. Maybe his Goldman Sachs experience, maybe he's got the money tree. Bring uh, the money tree. <laughs> his, his supporters would certainly hope so. I guess, yeah, I yeah. guess so. But but on on to more more seriously. So magic and and money. Just trying to link them together for a second and understand my fascination with them both for similar and different reasons. Watching investors over thirty years, I've seen a lot of examples of how human beings who appear to be smart, intelligent, clever, analytical, rational, wise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, can make some basic mistakes, particularly when it comes to investing portfolios. And in amongst them, the reasonable number of good investors I've found all that time, I found people make common garden errors that come down to errors of judgment. That proved to me that even the smallest people make bad mistakes, particularly when it comes to money. When I think about it, clearly we want to be logical and rational and analytical, all those good things. In all our decision-making, of course we do, including portfolio management. 
But too often we are, are prone to make mental shortcuts. Too often we have natural biases. Too often we're distracted by our own emotions. Some might people might simply sort of discard it as this being fear and greed, but I think this goes a lot more than that. And we do things that, that with hindsight, certainly when we see the benefit of stock price charts or the index movements, were very silly. It struck me that the mind has lots of mental mental blank spots. Or, or, and of course, just linking that back to magic, if you think about it, what a magician is trying to do is to exploit those mental shortcuts you make, exploit how your mind does and doesn't always work well. So for me, there is a link between magic, behavioral science and investment in that we're trying to find out the bits that work well and use them and enjoy them and exploit them and explore them. And also try and find out the bits that don't work so well. And in the case of investment, try and reduce them or mitigate them. And in the case of a magician, try and exploit them for the person's entertainment. So I think there is a link there. And certainly in my in my own mind, they kind of joined around the back of the circle. I have an idea. How about trying a magic trick for your listeners? Yeah. Now, now, of course, this is quite hard because you can't see me and you can only hear me. So I'm going to have to ask you to do something. But what I'm going to ask you to do involves you to prove how your mind plays tricks. I just want you to put everybody to hold their right index finger up in the air and drawing their finger down to a big number six, a big number six in the air with their right index finger. Now, everyone can do that easily, yeah? Mm-hmm. Fine. Remember how you did that. Right, forget your right finger now. I want you to think about your right foot. Now, leave your finger alone, just your right foot. And you can sit down, e or stand up, and just do a small clockwise circle with your right foot and keep your right foot spinning round and round clockwise. Okay, everyone doing that? Mm. Great. Now, don't do it yet. Please don't do it yet. Keep your foot spinning. In a second, everybody put their fingers in the air. Okay. Now, when you try and do a number six, it'll turn your foot round from going clockwise to anti-clockwise. Give it a go. <laughs> okay. I was even prepped for that. You told us that it would do it, and I thought I was going to stop it, but I didn't. Yeah. So what's going on there? Basically, you're, 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 I mean, I, I called it a magic trick. It's, it's really how your mind plays tricks is a better way of looking at it. Because what's going on there is essentially your brain can't sense essentially two different opposite signals to your right finger and your right foot. And so one takes over. So what happens is as you try and do the number six and your right foot's already spinning previously it will turn your foot round from going clockwise to going anti-clockwise. And I've tried this on audiences all over the world in my public speaking. And I've actually, it can be done, by the way. Uh, A ballet dancer once came up to me and said that she could do it, and indeed she did. Uh, And a drummer did, which didn't surprise me as much. But it's pretty hard for most human beings. And again, it's only a fun illustration of the way your mind plays tricks. And, you know, sometimes... If you accept my explanation that essentially your brain can't send two signals, opposing signals, to do different parts of your body at the same time without confusing one, take that metaphor and think, well, however logical and rational and analytical I am, there's one sort of train of thought. But hang on a second, if I inject greed or fear or something, I'm going to override it. I may override it. And that may end up being the strongest signal. Uh, and so that's really why someone interested in behavioral science, I love this stuff because it essentially means how are we really making decisions? I, I may be able to come up with reasons afterwards and rationalize and intellectualize one of the decision, but how did I really do it? And of course, this is one of the reasons why if you are an investor or indeed anybody making major decisions, it's very important you keep a decision diary. 
you record at the time why you're doing something. And again, something I've watched good investors do over many years, and, and I've watched and bad investors don't do this, by the way. And the reason that good investors do it, they want to, to be reminded if they make a mistake later on what they got wrong at the time. Because six months or 12 months or three years after they've done something and it's proved to have gone wrong, the whole narrative in the marketplace, the media, the journalists, your colleagues will have, will have altered why something happened. And the real reason you may have bought something or sold something back when you did may be very different to what you believe it to be now. And please note, I'm not saying people are disingenuous after the event, quite the opposite. They're, they're, they're being honest, potentially. But in their own brain, they will have changed the reasons why they did something. So a decision diary is, is really important. And in fact, there's a, there's a good quote. Actually, uh, Danny Kahneman actually said, you know, the, I think he was talking to Mabusin, and they were chatting away and saying, what's the best thing an investor could do? And, and, and he says, you keep a diary about your decisions. So at least when you go back and analyze them later on, you'll know why you did something. And I think that's a really shrewd piece of advice. Yeah. Wow. My foot is still wishing it went the, <laughs> the clockwise. I appreciate that link. And as you're talking, though, I'm just thinking, wait, the magic circle has been around for 100 years. So magicians have noticed that we can create these illusions or take advantage of people's mental shortcuts in some capacity to make it seem like magic is happening. And that's been happening for over 100 years. But yet Kahneman's work really came to be at the end of like in early 2000s, which isn't that long ago. Why do you think it took us so long to realize that these mental shortcuts were impacting the way we handled this like incredibly powerful thing called money? Well, there's always been theories about how markets work. And, and of course, you could go back to Adam Smith, who many people cite as being probably the first behavioral economist, really. I mean, Smith actually wrote about many, many things, not just about, about trading, but actually he talks about human emotions, about why we are motivated to do things. And a lot of those actually involve emotional humanity or philanthropy. Or, and now, now, these things technically in a harsh sort of business sense don't make sense. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a modern example. If you go to a good restaurant, nowhere near where you live, and you're never going to go to that town or resort again, it's pretty hard not to tip good service. It's, I mean, I know there's there's much more of a, a tipping culture across the Atlantic than there is in the UK, but even in the UK, most people would tip reasonably generously for good service. And yet, logically, it doesn't make sense from a sort of purely mercenary financial point. You're never going to go back there again. There's nothing in it for you, but it's a way of saying thank you. And, and I, I take great heart from that, by the way. And by, and by the way, Smith wrote about sort of not dissimilar sorts of feelings towards why people do things that are generous or helpful to other people, even though there's no known economic benefit coming back. And I think this is one of the wonders of humanity. It's one of the better sides of it, is that actually we our brains are hardwired to respond to kindness. I mean, Bob Cialdini's written a lot about this in his book on persuasion. One of his six ways of persuading people is something called reciprocity. What is reciprocity? It's simply if you do something nice for somebody, they'll do something back nice for you. It doesn't make economic sense in most cases if you're not going to see the person again, but we still do it. And so I think there's been awareness of some of the things that go into our are thinking over many, many years. I mean, this is hardwired in us. This is not mm -hmm. 100 years old. This is, well, Homo sapiens is what, between two and 250,000 years old. And you could trace the hominid ancestors back probably 6 million years. 
I mean, so so these kind of things are hardwired in us, the way the brain works and, and doesn't always work well, as I pointed out earlier. So I think people have been aware of them, but they've often been hard to analyze or put down on paper. And of course, behavioral science, as you pointed out, Kahneman's really been the person that's the, the modern day godfather of behavioral science and, and done a huge service by writing Thinking Fast and Slow and codifying his work that he and Tversky did over many years before that. I, I think uh, far be it for me to criticize the book. It's it's absolutely brilliant. I just wish it was written in a slightly more user-friendly context. I saw a stat the other day that only 7% of people who started the book had finished it. I have read it twice, by the way. I've read it once fast and once slow. So I've read it fast and slow. But it's got so much good stuff in there. I just fear a lot of it's hidden because it's it's written in quite an academic manner. Why? Because it's quite an academic treatise. But the wisdom within it is, is quite extraordinary. But as I say, a lot of this goes back a long time. I mentioned Smith. Now that's going to go back a few hundred years. I've been quoted before saying, I think one of the fathers of behavioral science was Aristotle. Because if you read some of his works on, say, persuasion, so that's Bob Cialdini going back a few thousand years beforehand, I mean, Aristotle is really comes up with so many brilliant ideas about how the human mind can be persuaded. And these are, in my opinion, behavioral science. So for example, he says, yeah, you need your logos, you need your logic, your sensible, rational arguments. What also helps is your ethos, so your credibility. It might be you, might be the, the firm you represent in modern day parlance, your degrees, your education. So logos and ethos are really good, but he adds something that you won't find in many textbooks, or you say you won't find in many presentations, I should say, pathos, which is really empathizing and putting yourself in the shoes of the client, if you like, or and thinking what's the client's objectives rather than what my objectives are, than trying to win them over, not just with facts and figures and data, but how they feel, telling them stories, these things. Now, you know, some businesses are much more advanced than others. The advertising business is, is way, way, way ahead of the financial markets business in terms of persuasion techniques, I think. But I think it's always interesting. And one of the things I do in my workshops, Sean, is, you know, talk to people about how to improve their presentations. And I'm not talking about basic presentation skills. They can learn that from a million people out there. I'm talking about how to improve the literature you use and the way you say things. So, for example, go through your presentation book a moment and characterize it. You know, how much stuff is in there is, is logos, is facts and figures. It's all very important. How much is ethos and how much pathos is in there? And I tell you now, there isn't much pathos in most presentations. It really doesn't focus on that. Or should we call them in modern day terms, benefits to the client? Mm -hmm. It's all about features and advantages. Again, I think this is behavioral science applied old ideas, in this case, thousands of years old, into a 21st modern day setting. And I, so I think it's hugely relevant. It sometimes just amazes me when I've, uh, I mean, having been in the finance industry for over 10 years and going to so many conferences when people would come up, very intelligent people, but come up with their spreadsheet, trying to convince us with statistics of how many offices, how many employees they have, how important their companies are, and they, very generic presentations. If you're at a conference and there's multiple presentations, you just tune them out. Then you get someone up there who just can look at you in the eyes, tell a story, there's that emotional connection and it makes me think of like the power of storytelling. You look at TED Talks now, lots of them are involving stories. And I think it speaks to this idea around the behavioral biases is that we have these emotions, we have these feelings underneath us that make us, whether it's rational or actually, or sorry, 
some people call it irrational or it's just we're actually being rational humans and we make faulty decisions. But this idea to connect in stories, has uh, it helped us evolve since Homo sapiens. I mean, we preserve cultures through stories. We, we share cultural identities through stories and preserve these cultures. It amazes me that we, I guess, sometimes forget that that's how humans connected. And I want to bridge this into this idea we kind of were talking before we started is that in 2019 or 2013, sorry, there was two unlikely people who won the Nobel Economics Prize, and that was Eugene Fama and Robert Schiller. Now, I would assume Schiller would be someone who's going to be telling us a nice story <laughs> and allowing the emotions and kind of bridging the social science with the economic principles, where Fama is really on these rational rational markets. As you're talking about this, this pathos thing, I'm curious where you think the difference relies in their two methodologies on the markets. But do you think it's maybe their desired outcomes are different? And what I mean by that is where Fama might be just so specifically focused on the balance, balancing the balance sheet, so to speak. And Schiller might be more focused on understanding our stories, so to speak. That was kind of a rambling question, but... No, I get it. I get, I get okay. the question. And it's a good question. It's a provocative question. And, you know, those those two guys you mentioned are both geniuses and they're, they are mm, of top course, of their yes. game. And I, I, I hesitate to offer criticism of either of them beyond saying that, well, let's step, let me step back a bit, first of all. First of all, in this whole logic versus pathos, logos versus pathos yeah. bit, it's really important to go back to what Aristotle said and said, one is not enough on its own to persuade. Mm. You need a combination of all three. So nobody is ever saying that it's better to use a spreadsheet or it's better to tell a story. It's not an either or. Right. I think what I'm certainly taking off the wisdom I've received and my knowledge of behavioral science is why not use all the weapons in the armory? Why not use both of them and, and obviously ethos as well and Cialdini's six ways to persuade people and anything else you can find that's useful. Don't just restrict yourself to something that we might obtusely call logic because guess what? People don't always just respond to, to logic. And in fact, there's a there's a quote, I can't quite remember it, is, is someone once said to somebody, look, you're just being logical, you're not thinking. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I really like that idea mm -hmm. because it's, for me, thinking is a lot more than just being logical, although logic is really important. Uh, and, and, you know, when it comes back to spreadsheets, yeah, they can be very persuasive. There's lots of good data out there that can be persuasive. But ultimately, what persuades people is not data, it's, it is a story around a piece of data. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I would say to anybody who's presenting a, their case to run portfolios or a new idea or technology or architecture, you know, if you're going to show a lot of data, that's good. Bear in mind, there'll be people in the audience who won't necessarily appreciate the, the intricacies of some of the data. So what bits of that data can you best pull out and tell a story around? And by tell a story, I don't mean anything make-believe. I mean, how can you illustrate with an example that data, so it hits the mark. If you were selling a car, sure, you might find the old petrol head or that wants to know how every part of the engine works. Great. That's why you get a car ultimately, is to drive from A to B with an engine that works. But there's so much more to buying a car than just how the engine works. And most of us, and I may be wrong, you maybe uh, know your engines intricately. No. No but idea. it's the way, it's how we feel when we sit in the car. Do we feel safe? Do we feel comfortable? Can we see properly? There's a lot, lot more to it. How, you know, does, how does it smell? Are those seats, they smell everything about it. It's not, it's how you feel. And interestingly, and I'll just quickly 
briefly go back to the to, to magic. If you ask people a year or two later about a great magic show, or it could be any show, could be a musical, could be a play, could even be a book they read. What do they remember it? What were the best tricks the magician did? What were the best songs that the artist sung? They probably won't remember very well, if at all. What they'll remember is how they felt. Mm-hmm. Is how they felt. You know, think of a really good concert you've been to, how they felt. When we're selling an idea, a product, anything, yes, we've got to focus on what we're doing, the data, the facts, the figures, all that stuff. We've got to do all that. But can we help them make them feel comfortable with our proposition at the same time? You know, so when I was involved, for example, when I was working with PIMCO back in the early 2000s and fixed income in those days were, wasn't a particularly well-known asset class in the UK. It, was, it had been primarily in equity culture, certainly in institutional and private pension schemes. And there were some, but compared to now, knowledge was, was, was fairly limited. One of the ways of promoting a fixed income asset allocation in what had previously been largely equity-based portfolios when I got to PIMCO was very much this idea of not, uh, obviously the PIMCO engine, the mechanics of how they invested bonds was, was terrific. I mean, absolutely, that's your logos and that's your ethos. Absolutely, you know, manifest 100,000 times over. But what perhaps a sophisticated bond investor struggles with in selling to a, should we say, um, a less sophisticated audience, it's how to get across that pathos idea. The way that I felt it was appropriate to do, and indeed I'm, I stand by this, having had a, a huge bull market in bonds for, for many, many, many years until very recently, is the idea that selling bonds, that promoting bonds as part of a balanced portfolio, and I know that over the Atlantic, 60-40s have certainly been in vogue for, for many, many years as well. But just for a first-time bond investor, the idea being that this is an investment you can probably sleep well at night with. So your equities allow you to increase your chances of, of capital growth. Your bonds are more about income and, and about, as I say, this idea of sleeping well at night. Now, I'm, I'm simplifying greatly for obvious reasons, but for the purposes of this, this talk, but if you can get across this idea that by putting these new asset class in and, and they are genuinely sleep well at night type assets, mm-hmm. this is like sitting in a car and feeling safe. Mm-hmm. It's not just the engine that's going to sell it, it's the whole package. And again, I would never sell it on one aspect alone, but it's trying to combine all of them. And I think it reminds me of the great, that great quote from William Bruce Cameron, great quotation. It's one of my favorite, favorite quotes. Not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. Mm-hmm. So beware the tyranny of the spreadsheet. It's, it, they can be brilliantly useful, but they're not the, the be-all and end-all when it comes to persuasion, ethical, moral persuasion. Um, sorry, Farmer and Schiller. That's yeah. where we started. Yeah. So, so interestingly, so, so two different views. Again, simplifying uh, Schiller, sort of animal spirits, driving markets, emotions, very important. Farmer, no, no, we're much more logical and rational than that. And that I think I'm right. I've read some research uh, that he'd written uh, a few years ago. Yeah, I think he questions even the idea of bubbles. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they are the right thing at the time. Yeah, they gave him the Nobel Prize at the same time. It's fascinating for me. And, and I love the, love the fact they did because it reminds me that Certainly one of the major teachings of behavioral science is to, is to sort of look at the other side of the argument. And for me, it's a great sadness in, in politics, in, in social media generally, that people are pretty bad at ever thinking, ever asking themselves this one single question. They're bad at asking themselves the question, where could I be wrong? 
And of course, we're not encouraged to think like that because you think about it, you walk into any bookshop, you know, self-help books, it's all about confidence. It's about thinking you can do it. It's about, you know, it's almost the bluffer's guide to becoming the next big CEO of Apple or something. I mean, that's how a lot of self-help books are, are, are packaged. If you go to a boss with a great idea that you've thought about for a long time and you say, look, boss, I've got this great idea. Why don't we do this? Because of this, 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 this reason. We don't really regard it as a clever thing to say, but let me tell you where I could be wrong. Because it doesn't sound the sort of thing that dynamic human beings should be doing. It's actually a very sensible question to ask. And, and I think for big decisions, we should always try and ask it. And I, and I wish I did it more. I'd try and do it, but I, I fail miserably, no doubt, and have done many, many times. Where could I be wrong? Because what happens is if we are wrong with something that we come up with, an investment idea, for example, after the event, it's obvious why we have hindsight bias. And as I said earlier, my, my narrative's changed. And often with hindsight bias, it's very, very simple and easy to know why we're wrong. And, and here's the best bit. People talk and, you know, with their forecasts and their, you know, macroeconomic predictions and journalists are particularly good at this or talking heads on on CNBC and the BBC and other places, so they'll whip up these so-called experts to talk about what's going to happen. And, and, and you've probably read the work of Philip Tetlock. If you haven't, I thoroughly recommend it. These experts rarely get it right more often than the layperson in the streets when it comes to political predictions or market predictions. Rarely do. But they'll sound really convincing. But at the very they say, where could I be wrong? You don't want to ask yourself that question for too long, too many times, because you'll never do anything if you do. Mm-hmm. But it's a, I think for a big decision, it's a, it's a good thing to do it yourself. And I mean, even, I mean, there's a joke, as you probably know, Darwin, one of the greatest thinkers in history, came up with the theory of evolution. If you haven't seen it, Google it. Darwin's reasons for and against marriage. And what happened was he, he, oh, fell, in, he fell in love with the class. Yeah, you, I won't spoil it for listeners, but he, came, he basically, in his notebook, he, he fell in love with his, um, with his cousin. He wasn't sure that the marriage or not. So his, there's that notebook still survives, and that's what you'll see a, a printout of. He writes reasons to get married, reasons not to get married. And, and some of the reasons are sensible and some of the reasons are really silly. And one of the reasons, ways of doing this is you've got to ask, you've got to come up with silly, almost off the wall type suggestions for where you could be wrong and where you could be right. It's, it's very funny. There's two or three very funny ones in there. There's a happy ending of the story. He chose the reasons to get married uh, and they had a long and happy marriage to Emma. And I think they had 10 children. So, but it, again, the serious point is it's, Occasionally, we need to do it a bit, a bit more often for the big decisions. Where could I be wrong? Yeah, I think like the more I, I've learned to practice self-reflection or sitting with decisions, the more I've realized, oh, I'm missing things or I'm going too fast. And it, it, it's helped me recognize that, okay, I do have some of these, if we go back to these biases that are happening. Where I want to go right now, though, is I want to go back to the bubbles. And for people who are listening, we kind of went quickly over what these mental shortcuts or these biases are. Let's use a bubble as an example. And we'll go from the Schiller's perspective of what cognitive biases or mental shortcuts are happening as we go through and create these bubbles. And, and using that as an example so people can be like, oh, okay, I see. I, In hindsight now, like you said, it's easier to understand because... You know, Kahneman has always said that he falls prey to these biases as well. And I've heard people critique being like, well, what's the point? If we are evolutionary hardwired to have these biases, does knowing them serve us better? And I think in light of our conversation here, this slowing down and being able to reflect and ask ourselves these questions is, hey, am I falling prey to overconfidence bias or availability bias? 
I think I personally think there's some value in understanding them if we slow down and take your suggestion of asking questions. So let's use the bubble as an example. Maybe you could just talk about some major or main biases that are happening so that people can kind of put some context to it. Okay, so that's a really good, really good question. And it's quite a deep question because I've witnessed, you know, certainly in my career, the massive bubbles over 35, 40 years. The bubble that stands out to me most of all in terms of my memory is the tech bubble of the late 90s. And I was working for Schroeder's at the time, and Schroeder's uh, still are a wonderful fundamental-based investment house, not likely to get swept up with the latest fad or fashion, certainly, the, certainly not in the, in the 90s. And if you remember, what was happening was lots of tech stocks or stocks that sounded techy mm-hmm. were going up hugely, PE ratios expanding. In fact, they didn't even have earnings, most of these, most of these uh, companies that were doing extraordinarily well. If you were sort of based your analysis on known revenues, forecast revenues, quality of management, all the good old-fashioned sort of ways that we used to do it in those days, PE ratios, yield, et cetera, you probably wouldn't have looked at uh, many tech companies, certainly not then. But these things were going up because people had jumped on board. It was near declining interest rates, easier credits, huge amounts of posting on, on the new chat boards on the internet. The internet, as you mentioned, the availability bias, it was so topical. It was so brilliantly all around us, the idea that the internet would change the world. And of course, we know the internet did change the world uh, massively. What happened was, I think the the whole internet bubble reflect a lot of dreams being sold. And I'm saying that with a little bit of hindsight bias. Not only will the internet change the world, but this company will be able to do this and make gazillions of money out of it and dollars will flow through the door. Now, we know a few that did. You know, we know about the Apples and Amazons and the ones that really did well over the last 30 years. There's an awful lot that didn't. In fact, the vast majority of the ones that I certainly remember from the 90s didn't. And then that's the kind of the idea of selling dreams. So what's going on there in the human mind? Well, Just the, the question was, on there, yep. what percentage do you think, like, and this is a total estimate, of the ones that made it, like the Amazon, the Apples, compared to all those companies that were just even adding .com to their name or tech to their name? Yeah. Well, there's a kind of power law here, isn't there? You know, where it's sort of exponential. So the ones that made it, made it really, really big. Probably some of the ones that's, that did okay are still struggling or maybe sure. And the ones that look good at, well, have now collapsed totally. I mean, famous stories abound of companies, as you say, just changing their name when they stopped rising massively on the yeah. basis of a name change because it sounded very techy. And what, so what are the, your, your question was about what are the human biases going on there? Well, I think in that kind of excited, febile atmosphere where people, have you heard about so-and-so? I think the biggest bias that I witnessed then was something that's called the bandwagon effect. Mm. So, I mean, you and I might call it the herd instinct, I guess. The bandwagon effect is essentially you see a bandwagon rolling along <laughs> and it's doing rather well and people are making money on it. So guess what? I want to jump on board that bandwagon and I'm... To hell with any analysis or it, because I'm I'm watching my neighbor get rich. Mm-hmm. And and it and it, you know, jealousy jumps in here as well. I think there was a lot of bandwagon jumping on that people saw people were making money. And of course, in certain conditions that bubbles thrive in, so easy credit, low interest rates, deregulation, all there's 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 other sort of factors, and they've been studied by Kindleberger and others. Uh, Charles Kindleberger's book, by the way, is really worth reading in that context where he goes through lots of historical bubbles and looks for the common factors. But I think what happens is in terms of the investment communities, it, you know, and it turns on the TV or, or looks at the chat, the, the bulletin boards on the, this new internet thing and sees stocks being tipped and stocks go up and just jumps in. And, and 
you know, it was pretty hard at Schroeder's in those days because I'm you know, going to see clients and we wouldn't have a lot of these stocks in. And so we'd underperform the index, which contained a small amount of these stocks. But guess what? It was a small amount that was making a difference to the index because they were going up so much. So we were underperforming. Now, when you've got a client sitting across the table from you who says, look, you've underperformed by X percent this year, you haven't had any tech, everyone knows it's the new future, it's the way forward. Why in the hell have you got an E? You've then got to decide, well, do I stick with my long-held principles of how I fundamentally value a stock? Do I capitulate? Knowing that if I capitulate, it might be near the top because I still think it's a bubble. And indeed, a lot of people did capitulate near the top. And, and some of you may know the story, there was another house in those days called Phillips and Jew Fund Management back in the late 90s, who had a well-known strategist working with them. He does, he's no longer alive, called Tony Dye. And Tony Dye went out on a limb in the media and everyone to say, this is a bubble. This will all come collapsing. I think I'm right in saying, I may be wrong, but not, I'm not wrong by very much. Phillips and Drew let him go pretty near the top of the bubble. He had to find out other employment. And then we know what happened. The bubble popped and a lot of those companies went bumpo. And the market collapsed and we had, you know, a decent bear market for a while. We then saw some recovery for three or four years. And then we saw the housing market crash in 07, 08. And then we saw a global financial market crash. So Tony Dyche, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of profits in many ways, it was uh, not believed at the time. It's so fascinating, this like bandwagon effect of how we just want to be part. And it's so linked, though, to our evolutionary being. We want to be in that tribe. We want to feel safe in that tribe. If I'm sitting out in an environment that I don't feel safe, there's fear and I want to get part of the herd. By the way, that's you, you've just actually raised, Sean, a really interesting point here because, uh, and I, I've said this before, but I want to say it again for the record, is that a lot of people just assume that all biases are irrational. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to st just stand back a little bit and just take a deep breath in and pause and say, hang on a second, what are we saying here? Because the motivation that goes into the biases, like the bandwagon effect, like conformity, like this idea of reciprocity we mentioned earlier, they're not irrational. They make perfect sense in certain environments, more most often the, you know, the evolutionary ancestral environment that our brain has been hard or pre-wired in over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. But put those mental shortcuts into a different artificial environment like a modern day financial market and the bandwagon effect or the herd instinct, which has been so useful for our evolutionary survival of our DNA over millions of years, because guess what? Herding together does keep our DNA safer. Suddenly apply that in a financial market contest and it doesn't do that. It could be quite opposite. It could be very dangerous. So I hesitate to use this phrase irrational about biases because the, but it's not so much the bias itself is rational as the context in which that mental shortcut is often applied. I hope that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And like, yeah, if we're saying that there, if our shortcuts are useless, then uh, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, um, correct, yes, correct. Dick Wagner has said about money, it's the most powerful and per pervasive secular force on the planet. And so when you put money though, and we're, I feel like we're all too often unexamined of the influence that money actually has on us. But when you put the pressures of money and all the different attachments money does to our emotions, then I think it just influences these cognitive biases in ways that maybe mm -hmm. don't serve us well in that particular context. And I think that goes back to your suggestion about, and this is where I kind of want to bridge for people talking is we have these cognitive biases. They are part of us and they will continue being part of us. But I, as you said earlier, questioning and trying to see the other side 
of the decision tree is maybe one of the best things we can do <laughs> around yeah. trying to control, not control, understand the biases that are influencing our yeah. decisions. One of the great, and again, listen, I'm not the expert on this, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and people that are, but one of the great lessons for me, and I, and I say this as someone with, you know, the experience of 30 years worth of mistakes, that's what I've got in the investment markets is, you know, a couple of things are very helpful for investment and for personal wealth, well-being. One of which is just to be aware of the concept of time and having the patience to let time do its usual thing in, in, in certainly in capital markets like the stock market. Because generally, if you accept the power of compounding, and again, you can find 20 or 30 year periods where it doesn't work, but generally go back you know, to when the stock market started, let your money stay invested in a broad section of good quality stocks, enjoy the power of compounding rolled up dividends, and you will be, unless you're very, very unlucky, rewarded. And that's kind of the motivation for the, the capitalist system, if you like, because if you weren't, there wouldn't be a capitalist system. Mm -hmm. That's why I, you know, I still continue to believe that if you, for, for long-term intergenerational investing, I'd rather be in equities than fixed income. Fixed income may help me sleep well at night in the short term, mm -hmm. potentially, but over the long term, I'd rather be in a good spread of decent companies, knowing that some of them won't make it, of course, but knowing that enough of them will and the power of converting. And, and so I think that, you know, reminds me that another underestimated factor in investing and indeed in life is resilience. I don't know if you know the famous quotation that uh, uh, Vetus Gerolitis beat Jimmy Connors at tennis in 1980. And do you know what he said to him after he'd beaten him? No. It was in a press conference and it's, it's really brilliant. He said, Gerolitis said, um, and let that be a lesson to you all. Nobody beats Vetus Gerolitis 17 times in a row. Because Connors have beaten him 16 times in a row. Right? <laughs> now, now it's a really funny comment. And he's talking to the assembled press mob there. But amidst the humor, there's a serious point there. Resilience, resilience, resilience. You know, yeah. and, and one of the, the joys about behavioral science and me, Sean, is that there are so many areas of life you can find these life lessons in, which kind of funnel back to my bucket called behavioral science, but really going the other way as well. I was watching a, well, a famous, one of my favorite movies the other day, a really old movie, Lawrence of Arabia, which is the classic one with Peter O'Toole as Lawrence. And, and there's quite a lot of behavioral science. There's a lot of behavioral science in all these classic movies, by the way. But there's a scene where Lawrence of Arabia is in a, is in a kind of bar and he, he picks up a, a match and he puts it out with his fingers and he doesn't even flinch. He just, he just puts the match out and doesn't flinch. And there's another person in the scene who um, looks at Lawrence and tries to do the same and gets a match, lights it, and then tries to put it out with his fingers and goes, ah, and yelps in pain. His character says to Lawrence, it damn well hurts. And Lawrence said, well, certainly it hurts. And the man said, well, what's the trick then? And Lawrence Arabi replies, the trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. Mm. So there's a bit of resilience wow. in there, a bit of stoicism yeah. in there. It's your attitude to the problem rather than the problem itself. We haven't mentioned stoicism yet. I know we did in our pre-chat, but I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in stoicism. I mean, there's, there's some stuff. Uh, some people accuse the Stoics of being a bit sort of resigned to yeah. life, but, but there's a lot of good lessons in there. And by the way, for those listening, the philosophical school of stoicism doesn't have much to do with the modern word stoic. So if, it's worth reading. And in fact, if ever you want to read about any of these things like stoicism or Epicureanism or any of these Greek philosophers, there's one book, I, I, I've got a few books, I've got hundreds of books I'd recommend, but there's a book called Philosophy for Life 
by a guy called Jules Evans. I read it about uh, when it first came out. I got to know the author, actually. And what the book does is give you a real lovely, simple guide to 12 of the greatest philosophers from the ancient classical world. It really set me thinking all those years ago when I read it. And actually, so much behavioural science in there again. It's one of the reasons why I think Aristotle was the first behavioural scientist. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really easily readable book and you can just read a chapter in a, in a few minutes. And, you know, your attitude to a problem to get back to the topic, your attitude to a stock market fall your, is, is actually really, really, really important to surviving from it and learning from it and going on. And again, if you believe in the sort of longer term benefits or patience of investing in, in stocks, if that's your credo, it may not be, but it's, it's certainly been mine, then you accept with some sort of resilience that things won't always go right and you can be suffering. But you need to tell yourself, listen, unless we're in for some sort of the, a huge major bear market like the 30s over the course of the next 10 years, and that could happen, who knows? Then it's a good, it's a probably a reasonable way to think about financial well-being, certainly mental well-being with your money, and don't get too caught up by short, short-term day-to-day trading movements. So I was amazed. Well, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we had two changes of prime ministers in the last seven or eight weeks. It amazes me, all these experts that come out of the woodwork telling me why markets are moving because of this, this, because he said that, or she did this, or they said this, and explaining why a gilt market moved, you know, 0.01 of a yield or, or whatever. And it's, you know, and I said, well, have you seen what the, you talk about the gilt market, have you seen what the US Treasury bond market did overnight? It did exactly the same. Now, is, our, is British politics responsible for that? No. I mean, have you seen what the US bond market's done this year? Have you seen what yields have done in the last two or three months? You think we're completely isolated from that? And, and so, but everyone's an expert when they've got their, they've got their little bit of data, mm-hmm. their little market movement. They've got the narrative they want to justify. They'll put the data on the narrative and come up with something that's completely wrong. But in their heads, it makes total sense. And again, this question, where could I be wrong? I don't think <laughs> that goes in at that point, though. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And I, you know, I point out to a few people, again, I'm not making a political point here at all, but there's a lot of t- stuff talks about the guild market in the last month or two. It's really simplifying and, and, and make, because that's what people like to, that's how people process it in their brains. That's what people want to be used to as procedures. But there's no sense of the context or the global context or um, what's going on in U.S., Treasury bond markets or anything. It's all, you know, we're all very parochial. We're all very, well, to use your phrase earlier, the availability heuristic. It's much easier to pick up on a little bit of domestic news. Thousands of mistakes in my life have taught me sometimes you've got to look at the whole context. And certainly, hopefully, if you do that, there's less chance of making bad and bad mistakes. All of this, it just keeps reinforcing to me and... I mean, I was trained as a financial planner that the, here's the rational market, here's the right answer. And now, as I learned that we have so many different contexts when it comes to people, there's no right answer other than to maybe listen to your client. But it seems to me as we talk about these heuristics and this, this going back to this herding, and we did that because we want to be safe. And you talk about this time, even you give the illusion of time is over a long period of time, we're going to, you know, with compound interest, we usually see it. our investments go up. But it, it seems like we have this cognitive dissonance that I don't feel safe right now. I want to be part of that tribe. I need to feel safe. So I'm going to try to do a whole bunch of different things to make myself feel safe. And we try to do that by finding an answer, which it's hard to get an answer, especially in volatile markets. And I don't even know if we can find an answer that truly makes us feel safe other than, okay, I'm part of this bandwagon that's illusion of creating or feeling safe. 
And when you bring up stoicism or any other philosophy, I feel like it 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 allows us to kind of get out of the the chaos, so to speak, and gives us this other guiding principle, so to speak, of being like or, or guiding principle to have hold of vision. And I'm just kind of thinking about this on the spot, but in a way, I feel like it allows us to f- find safety in a different way than trying to manipulate my money or find safety in that realm versus like whether it's from the stoicism view of like suffering's okay. Well, the truth, the truth of the matter is, and I'm being very frank here, is there are a lot of circumstances in which a lot of people would rather we all be wrong together than risk being right or wrong on your own. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of business culture there in, in that particular comment. You know, I, mean, I mentioned earlier, it's hard to go up to your boss and say, here's a really good idea, but let me tell you why I could be wrong. I think our industry probably, I mentioned earlier that I think in terms of persuasion, it may be behind other sectors of the business world, like advertising, obviously. But I think also it's harder for us in the financial world, but it's harder for us to be creative and innovative because the only way that we can to be innovative is new new kind of financial products, which let's be honest, haven't always been the land of milk and honey we've been promised. But there isn't much creative or innovative thinking, I think, in a lot of financial organizations. Now, now, I'm obviously generalizing there, but I think as a sort of an industry, I don't think it's too much an over generalization. Just as I think there's there may be too much in some of the more wackier industries like advertising. So mm-hmm. I, I, I have no idea what the correct amount is, by the way. But I'm just saying that if you live in a data-obsessed world and that's all you ever care about, you, you end up falling for this, this fallacy called the Dorman fallacy, which you're probably familiar with. The idea being that, you know, I replace my Dorman with a, a keypad because guess what? It saves me money. It's reliable. It, it will always turn up. The, the keypad's already there. And all that money I'm going to be saving, I can, you know, I can use for something else. What that Dorman fallacy fails to, to explain is the fact that if you replace a Dorman with a keypad, you don't have someone to sort of say, hello, good morning, sir, good morning, madam, or have a good day, or can I take those bags, or provide an extra level of security for the building in which the door put doorman is, 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 is looking after. There's all these unknown things that don't go onto a spreadsheet. And I, and I think that's my, my point. Again, going back, combining the logos ethos and pathos, it's not just about the logos on its own. It's useful. Mm-hmm. But unless you allow a bit of creativity, a bit of innovation, you're never really going to change. And I was talking with a couple of friends the other day about something, we, a phrase that I'm sure you've used. I've used it many times. Best practice. We, you know, well, I'm kind of companies boast about best practice. And a friend of mine, it wasn't me who said this, but they, they, they said this to me. And I, and I thought about it and thought, my hell, I'm, I'm wrong. The moment you use a phrase like, we employ best practice, you have stifled creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. You are saying... This is the accepted social norm. This is the accepted consensus. This is the accepted, brackets, lazy consensus that says this is best practice. How dare I claim it's best practice? It's only best practice up to now. And if I'm worth my salt, I should be thinking about what's better than best practice. But if you don't let me do that, because we have to do it this way, because it's always been done this way, because it's the best practice way, the sort of chest and fence idea, you know, this fence, you know, knock it down, you know, or what, or keep it there, whatever it may be, you know, then guess what? You are, you are suddenly potentially stifling yourself from new ideas. And again, sometimes some of the old ideas are best. I've talked a lot about classical wisdom today, talked about the idea of using time and patience. Tolstoy, the strongest of all warriors are time and patience. It, it may sound like just some sort of literature cliche, but think about it. It's quite good. That, that'd be an old idea that I kind of want to keep. Mm-hmm. 
But it doesn't stop me wanting to be innovative and creative in other other ways. So it's, life is a balance. The whole thing is time. This does this whole deal. I was I was in lucky enough to be in Venice recently, and I was standing in St Mark's Square. And for your listeners who've been to St Mark's Square, you'll be familiar with a very great basilica. But there's a place. There's a sort of little smaller version of the square just next to it, just off the square. And there are two kind of statues up there. And in the middle of where the statues are now, sort of two, I should say, two columns, which have now got statues on. And the middle of where, between those two columns, was where they used to hold the public executions in the old days. And people would be hanged or beheaded there. And it was done for a reason there. But why? Because where the condemned man stood, or condemned woman stood, he was right opposite, looking across the Mark Square at the clock tower. And on the clock tower, there's obviously the, the the face of the clock, but there are two figures on the top, two massive, wonderful figures. I mean, wonderful sculptures, one of, moving figures, by the way, that represent time past and present. And there's, a, I think, I believe there was a, sort of what the executioner was alleged to have said when the condemned person was there, you know, basically about to be strung up, looking at this, the, the, the time part. The line was, now I'll show you what time is all about. I, it's the end of your life, old son. And again, that really sunk into me because time is something that we, we need to use if we're lucky enough to have enough time, if we're lucky enough to have it. And who knows? No one knows how long they're going to last. But, but if we can have it, let's use it to our advantage with something like investment. So as opposed to trying to make all this sort of short-term speculative gains. And I'm, you know, I'm a great believer in relationships matter more than transactions. That would be a relationship with a, with a, with a wealth manager you don't want a client that's going to come in and out. You want a long-term client who's going to like you first, trust you second, and then build up a relationship with you third. Boom. That's the nature of good business. That's reciprocity in action. And that's really appreciating time that being used for its good service. It's not about trying to buy today at $30 and sell tonight at $31, in my, my view. Now, there's lots of people that do have a perfectly good life doing that. Good luck to them. It ain't my business. Yes. I really appreciate this focus you're having here about um, there's this cognitive distortion about all or nothing thinking. It's sometimes we zoom into it's all this way. And I'm hearing you talk a lot about balance. It's not ignoring the data. It's not ignoring the, the financial calculations, but it's also seeing that, hey, like you're talking about time, but are already talking about Aristotle. I'm actually studying positive psychology right now in the UK, in your country. But positive psychology pulls from him because he talked about living this good life of what is a good life. So I like this balanced approach that you're talking about is we can have the data. It's important. We need to know <laughs> our investments are going to work, but also balancing it with this, whatever our good life is or whatever well-being is to us. Sean, it's about knowing your context and context is everything. I mean, what you've identified in your last comment is, can you change your perspective on something? And, and as you, we talked about before, Alan Kay, a change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. Mm-hmm. If you can do what you've just described and, and, and get that balance right and not just be focused on one thing. I mean, this is the fox and the hedgehog again, I think. I, I really think it is. You know, I'd rather know about a lot of things than one thing only because it gives me some perspective. If you asked any of your listeners to you know, walk across, I don't know, a, a plank that is 12 inches wide on the floor. Then you say, I'll give you give you 100 bucks to do it. Everyone would do it. Put that same plank 100 foot off the ground and, and that, probably no one would dare to do it. Now, you may say, well, that's obvious, Paul. The downside is bigger than the upside. But I'm saying to you, yes, but that's the different context. 
And, and the change in context is what you need to do. So can you do it the other way around? Can you have a challenge, which is the equivalent of walking along that plank, you know, 100 feet off the ground? Can you reframe it so actually that plank's on the floor and actually it's quite easy and you need a different perspective. You need to be understand that most things can be reframed. One of the, the great pieces of advice I was ever given is can you third party your own problems? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means can you, can you put yourself in someone else's shoes advising you how to behave? Because guess what? If you can do that, your solution may be very different to how you are when you're worrying or thinking or getting anxious about it. Or put another way, if your one of your best friends had your problem, what would you advise him or her to do? Okay, and you suddenly start thinking about it from a different way, this different perspective. It it's really is about perspective, and, and there's a Japanese proverb which I love: "The frog in the well knows nothing of the mighty ocean." If you're stuck in the well, you ain't never going to see the ocean, so you have to get out. The frog in the well knows nothing of the mighty ocean, so. I hope listeners remember, think of that because it's just get out of the well and, and occasionally think about how would I advise my friend to deal with this issue? Can I change the context? The Jewish proverb, I felt sorry I had no shoes until I saw a man who had no feet. Reframe it. Everything can be reframed. The, these things are very helpful in the high pressurized world in which we live in, particularly if we're worried about money or wealth or mortgages or children's education or whatever, all these things. Can you step back and reframe it? And again, I listen, I didn't know this stuff when I was 20. I didn't know it when I was 30. I'm mm-hmm. now 50, 58. I think I know a bit better now than I did then, but I'm, I'm still learning. I've still got so much to learn. It's fantastic. We're very lucky. I can sense that the enthusiasm in that learner's mindset, I think it's just so important. And, and I just continuously hear you talking about the questioning or zooming out, going in that third person perspective. It really resonates with me in this master's program I'm in. We're studying financial behavior, meaningful financial behavior changes. And a lot of the research is coming back, like how do we make long-term meaningful changes? Second order change, which is that perspective change, it's through self-reflection. And self-reflection can be difficult because it creates discomfort. Sometimes we're, well, our evolutionary instincts are to avoid discomfort and that's how we survived. But I think we can learn a lot about our context when we zoom out, because when we're in the situation, I think it's very hard to see the context. I don't know your experience. We were talking before, you're adding a super interesting new portion in your, your book coming out. And I, we don't, we want reader, our listeners to get that book when it comes out. But you had a big change of context, I guess, or perspective change in your life. And you said to me, it was easy. And I was like, when I was listening, I'm like, you know when someone has a change in perspective when they say a big behavioral change is easy. Yeah, before we came on air, I, I pointed out to Sean that we, we've, we've delayed this podcast a few times and, and had we done it earlier in the summer, it would have been a very different me doing it because uh, back on July the 15th, I, I, I weighed myself and I didn't like what I saw on the scales. So since July the 15th to today, October the 25th, day of recording, uh, I've lost... 60 pounds uh, in weight. And I've just done it through a combination of a reasonably easy diet. But the reason it's reasonably easy is because I'm using lots of psychology and psychological tips and tricks to make the diet easy. And I'm doing a little bit of exercise as well. And I'm not doing anything particularly clever. I'm just eating less and doing a little bit of exercise. But the point is, is that there are lots of psychological things you can do, which I'm writing about in my book. I've had to add a chapter to it as I, as I come to the end of it. 
about why dieting for me has been easy. I'm not saying it's easy for everybody, but I think I can offer <laughs> quite a few ideas on how to make it easy. And, and in fact, a few of my friends who've seen me change my belt size six to eight inches smaller than when it started, uh, I've started taking up sort of doing some things I'm doing. So uh, uh, anyway, I hope that by the time people hear this podcast, I haven't put the weight back on again. I don't think I will. It's a lifestyle change, but it's it's been fun doing. And, and I'll I'll put it in my book. My book's about business, by the way. There's a bit of magic in there, a bit of golf in there, but there'll, there'll now be a bit of diet in there as well. But it's mainly about business and about attitudes to life to change your perspective and how to reframe issues and challenges to make them more easily overcome. And certainly weight loss is, is now a part of that for me. Well, it's all back to human behavior. And yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that book. As you were saying about the belt size and I'm thinking about probably new clothes. I'm thinking, I wonder if the purely market driven individual would be like, that's a bad decision. Financially, you got to buy new clothes. <laughs> uh, I'm just joking. <laughs> yes, but it's a, it's a, it's a nice problem. I mean, reframe it. I can, I can restyle my, my crappy old clothes and I can now be yeah. the new, new me. But I feel like, like, and that was a, that was a complete joke, but I think often, and we can learn this from that reflection is what is the point of this all? Is it to maximize yeah. my investment portfolio at every single cost? And I speak from experience on that is before I, I started examining my money store and why I'm trying to maximize everything. It was the cost that it was, it cost me deeper relationships with my spouse because like, I just couldn't understand how unrational according to my context, she was. And so I think that's an important thing. And that, that matters of our own context is what is this all for? Is it to have every single percentage right in our portfolios or savings accounts? I, that, that, I, uh, I can't answer that for everyone. Well, I've listened to some of your podcasts. Some of them were absolutely brilliant. And one message that comes through loud and clear from a lot of your, your guests, and it's certainly something I endorse. So I'm sorry, I'm not saying anything new here. But it's the idea that, yeah, you can define rich as, as having money, but you can then define having, being wealthy as having time. Mm-hmm. And then, then another of your guests, I think Brian, Brian Portnoy said this morning, you don't want to die rich, you want to live wealthy. And I, and I, you know, it's simple, it sounds a bit trite, but it's actually really, really good common sense. And I talk about lots of these issues in my book about, you know, and I mentioned stoicism, I mentioned various other things as well. And I'd be the first to say these aren't easily understandable when you're starting off in your career you're very hungry and I'm, I'm still very hungry i just reframe my hunger in terms of intellectual curiosity now but you're very hungry and you want to do well and you've got these life goals that are so so important you know meeting a partner and probably you know maybe buying your home kids whatever whatever it may be whatever your life goals are i think it's probably fair to say you appreciate experiences as you get older more than possessions but there are possessions that i love and adore mm-hmm. so i'm not trying to be i don't but but experiences are pretty special family comes high of most people's list but it, it it's probably easy for me to say this and i and i really apologize if it does sound a little bit patronizing but it's when you, when you get to your late 50s it's it's you, you kind of realize that things you thought were really important in the 20s that they probably were important then but they don't seem so important now and again i'm listen I'm guilty. I'm using hindsight bias. So mm-hmm. I'm falling into my own trap. So I got to be a bit careful. You know, but I, I appreciate that I'm younger than you. And I think that's how we gain wisdom is we, we listen with our ears to what people have experienced and learned that might be ahead of us in this, this journey of life. And I think that's really worthwhile. And I've heard this come out a few times around you with, with time 
And I don't know the, the quote offhand, but you mentioned Stoicism. Epictetus has a quote that really resonates with me about, basically about, you would never give out money to pass buyers, but we give out our time all the time to pass buyers. Very good. Yeah, well, he's, he's just one, he's one of the best. I mean, the key to keep company only with people who uplift you, whose presence calls forth your best was another one of his sayings. I mean, there's so much great wisdom in there. It really is brilliant. One of the most important things, I think, when you set yourself goals is not to have what I describe as an unreasonable long-term goal. Uh, and what do I mean by that? If you're climbing a, a mountain, say, and I've talked to mountaineers about this, you don't necessarily think about reaching the top. Your your immediate job is to get the next Peter in the in the rock face. And from that you get a safe grip and from that you get the next one. So you actually create a a lot of short-term goals, which ends up with your long-term goal of getting to the top of Mount Everest. Okay. And you can tell people like, I want to get to the top of Mount Everest. But in reality, what are you actually doing? You're, you're, you've got a, a sequence of short-term goals to get there. Uh, the weight loss thing I mentioned earlier is exactly the same. I, I had no targets, long-term target, but I, I have lots of short-term goals, which are easy to knock off, certainly using some psychological tips and tricks. I think it's very important for people who are want to be realistic about their goals is to set themselves short-term goals rather than long-term goals, short-term manageable goals. And you, it's kind of like, a bit like a to-do list. Uh, and again, I write about this a little bit more, hopefully fluently than I'm explaining it. It's a lot easier to cross off a to-do list on a daily basis than it is to say, I want to be prime minister in the next, in 30 years time. Because <laughs> guess what? But a combination of manageable, achievable to-do list day after day after day will get you a long, long, long way, much, much further than you'll ever think. Kind of goes back to the decision diary type thing we mentioned earlier. And so I'm just trying to sort of time what is a goal and what is, what is your own sort of idea of, of heaven and hell? Because we're too easily seduced by what we think fantastic. That Again, you'll be an expert in this world more than me, having, having studied this in more detail. But what is happiness? What is heaven? And what is hell in a sort of non-religious sense? And I've watched recently, I've gone through one of my favorite shows ever was the old 1950s, I guess, uh, Twilight Zones. And there's an episode called A Nice Place to Visit, which is, again, I'm watching these things from, with a behavioral science hat on because some of them are just amazing. And if you don't, I, I don't know whether I am, um, I think, Travis, if I tell you the, the, the plot of the thing, it'll spoil it. But I'll, I'll, I'll risk it. If, you, if you're going to watch A Nice Place to Visit, don't listen for the next one minute. But there's a character called Rocky in it, and he dies. He's had a sort of pretty unhappy um, life involving gambling and romances going wrong. And he dies. And he wakes up in a perfect afterlife. And there are beautiful women everywhere, which is part of his perfect life. Every wish he has is, is totally fulfilled. He goes into a casino and plays roulette. And every time he's, the roulette wheel spins, it lands on his number. But after a month, this all becomes a bit dull. And he, he meets an angel and he says he's bored with heaven. And can he go to the other place? And the angel says, this is the other place. Mm -hmm. So be careful. Don't get seduced by what you think are the obvious goals or pleasures or dopamine hits or whatever you want to call them. And I, I just love that episode anyway. This reflection and understanding yourself through your journey has really come to the forefront. And I hear it through that story and many things that you're saying. And I even... I mean, you're across the Atlantic Ocean, but I could just feel your excitement towards this field of study. So it's it's very yeah. interesting to observe you speak. Honestly, I'm more intellectually curious now than I was when I was at college. 
Oh, I certainly think so. It's just there's so much out there to learn and to read and and and, and to take in. And if you go back to one of the points I made earlier, there's so many behavioural lessons that you can get from watching a movie or reading a book or listening to a reading the lyrics of a of a of a, of a song or something. There's always there's wisdom. There's there's wisdom on every rock if you look for it. And and that's what really sort of gets me really motivated these days. Is what am I learn today? Mm. And more importantly, what am I learn tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I ask all guests a final question, and you—I I feel like there's been elements sprinkled in through this answer. So, so, or sorry, the answer to this question. Sorry, apologize if it's redundant, but let's say that our time has come to an end. Your time, your end of life, and you're sitting on a front porch somewhere that brings you contentment, ease, and peace, and you're looking out at whether it's a mountain, a city, lake, meadows, it doesn't matter, whatever brings you that sense of peace. And you decide to write a letter. I don't know if we talked, do you have children? Yeah, three, three boys. Three boys. Okay, you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned is one of the keys to having a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? I could offer two answers to that, actually. One is I would, I would probably give them the idea that time and patience are very important not just for money, but for everything, actually. Time and patience, I'd like to throw in resilience there as well, if possible. If you have those three things, and, and, you, and you have to be lucky enough to have time, by the way, so I'm, I'm not taking don't take it for granted would be another message. Mm. But if you're lucky enough to, to have time, then patience and resilience tends to pay off. Darren Brown, the magician, the, the, the British magician, his books are wonderful. He talks about the importance of sort of understanding the equation that says... Success is a combination of skill and hard work. I'd say success equals skill plus hard work plus luck. As I got older, the more I realized that how random some things are, most things are in the world, and that luck plays a part. And, and you can do things to help you make your own luck, but don't underestimate the power of good or bad luck. And finally, I would probably have a sign made with about 20 words written on it. And those 20 words would be, it's impossible, said pride. It's risky, said experience. It's pointless, said reason. Give it a try, whispered the heart. That one gave me a little goosebumps. Paul, I think that is the perfect time to wrap this conversation up. Thank you so much for your insights and wisdom. I hope you have a great day. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I hope you've been enjoying these conversations as much as I have. Before we go, if you can do me a favor, if you can head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, that will make my day and it will help us secure great guests like Paul. Have yourself a great week. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.